0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we're going to do a show on the evolving role of the vice presidency in national security and foreign policy. And I'm very happy to have Dr. Aaron Manis on the show today. And first of all, thank you for coming on the show, Aaron.
1: My pleasure
0: just for our listeners, Aaron is a researcher at the University of Maryland's Laboratory for Computational Cultural Dynamics and he also as we just said now is a doctor. He gained his PhD on the vice presidency, so he's the perfect person to talk about this really interesting topic. So to start off with, personally I don't know a lot about the vice presidency. I'm not a big political person and you know you see everything that our President is doing, but you always wonder what is the Vice President up to so I'm really happy to have you on the show to discuss this because this is a very important person in our country, yet I feel like the Vice President kind of falls in the shadows sometimes. Um, so, what are your thoughts on this, Aaron?
1: What are my thoughts on this? <clears throat> well, having just spent about ten years chewing on this topic <laughs> uh, so the vi- first of all for most of American history the vice president was utterly inconsequential. You might have been really important until you became vice president. So for example, the Senate majority leader, big deal, then he becomes vice president, nobody's returning his calls, nobody cares what he's has to say on an issue. And I mean I actually had an appendix in my dissertation of jokes about the vice president. Exactly.
0: That's that's what comes to mind when you're with a group of people and you say the VP comes up and there's always these horrible jokes and you sit there thinking this is a very important person and we're just making jokes about him?
1: Well, uh, the, I mean, really, the focus of my dissertation is what was the shift? Because basically in the last four decades, the vice presidency went from just about nothing to something pretty important and significant and the big questions are, well, why did this happen? Because believe me, for a hundred and um, basically 200 years of American history, the vice president was, except for a couple of exceptions, which you've, if you ask me about, I would love to discuss in great excruciating detail. But most of them really didn't matter. They'd see the president a couple times a year, uh, they only got to start going to cabinet meetings. In the at the beginning of the 1900s, so they weren't even invited to cabinet meetings. That gives you a sense of what a key role they played, and yet it shifted. And there's a lot of really interesting reasons for the shift. And I want to emphasize when you're talking about the vice president, everything the vice president has and does is because the president allows it, because it serves the president. So when you're looking at the vice president, you're really studying the presidency.
0: Maybe to start off with, let's look at this role and relationship between the U.S. president and the vice president, because as you just said, the U.S. president plays a huge, significant role in what the vice president does and is allowed to do.
1: Well, the first thing to know about the vice president is, he is the one person working for the president who the president can't fire. The vice president is elected along with a president. In theory, he can be impeached, but that that would be a huge pain in the ass and probably a constitutional crisis. So basically, you have this guy who you can't get rid of. So if he messes up, you're still stuck with him. And it it gets even more complicated. Very early in American history, our third vice president, Aaron Burr, basically was plotting against President Thomas Jefferson. And later, Burr was famously tried for impeachment. So that sort of gives the office a a bad reputation. Now, to top that off, as organized political parties became established, the parties were the ones that selected the vice president, not the president. So it was given to some guy from the opposite wing of the party So that if the the president was from the progressive wing of the party, they'd give the vice presidency to a guy from the conservative wing to sort of, you know, it's a little bit of political horse trading. So it was somebody the president probably didn't like, might not have even known, and had very little incentive to cooperate with. So that's your basis, and that's why vice presidents were rarely seen or heard heard. The, the archetypal vice president is actually a fictional character, Alexander Throttlebottom from a 1930s musical called Of The I Sing. And Throttlebottom, you know, I mean, it's a running joke in the play. Every scene where he walks in, people forget who he is. It's like, who are you again? Are you here to serve drinks? <laughs> when it turns out before he became vice president, Throttlebottom had been a hermit, but the other hermits didn't like him. And then he... Uh, And there's a great scene where he wants to see the president. And the only way he can get into the White House is to buy a ticket for the White House tour. That was the archetype for the vice president. And then that shifted. And it's really, it's just been in living memory. But there's been a sea change where when we talk about the most powerful vice president in history, we're not being ironic.
0: So what is this great shift that took place that has changed this position?
1: Ah, my dissertation.
0: Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: my dissertation, you know, in a dissertation, you have to have hypotheses and you test the hypotheses. And I, I had three basic hypotheses. And when you do that, this is just a little hint. If you ever decide to write a dissertation, You'll have a bunch of hypotheses, and there's one you really like. So the first issue is the presidency changed. Did the presidency get harder? Before Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president, the role of the president was extremely limited in American society. And FDR revolutionized the presidency in response to the Great Depression and World War II. So suddenly, the president had to be everywhere doing something about everything. The great presidential scholar Richard Neustadt refers to this as the shift from leader to clerk. That is, the president, before FDR was a leader, he could ride, on, ride onto the scene and take on an issue at his choice. If he didn't want to get involved, he kind of didn't have, I mean, if it was a war, obviously. But lots of regular domestic issues were just allowed to sort of play out by themselves. FDR changed that. Now the president was the man on horseback who was expected to ride into the scene and fix every problem. And Neustadt says, when everyone expects you to do something but everything, you're not a leader, you're a clerk. So that's the first hypothesis. Did the presidency actually get harder? The next hypothesis is that the vice presidency changed. The vice president uh, began to obtain access to more access to the White House process. For most of history, he had an office over at the Senate office building because the vice president is constitutionally the president of the Senate. That sounds important. It isn't. His job is to basically bang the ga- gavel and run the debates and vote in the case of ties. He hasn't actually run the Senate. In the 60s, the vice president got an office next to the White House in the old executive office building. So that was a start. He got a little more staff. But these are really small changes. The big change, because none of this was a natural evolution, the big change was President Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was the first modern outsider president. And by that I mean somebody who became president in the modern era who had never held office in Washington, D.C. I mean, sure, historically, we've had uh, these outsider presidents. Abraham Lincoln was an outsider president, but Washington was a much smaller place. Since the advent of the huge, you know, modern, bureaucratized federal government, Carter was the first guy with really no Washington experience. And he thought, he was willing to break with tradition and thought, I want a vice president who can help me. Not just a guy who helps me get elected, because that is always the first thing presidents care about, but a guy who can actually help me after I'm elected. And the first thing I think I need is, I know I don't know much about the U.S. Congress. I need a guy who knows a lot about the con- Congress. And he chose Walter Mondale, Fritz Mondale, uh, and a senator from Minnesota, experienced, really a, a master of the Senate, an incredibly effective, capable legislator. And he and Mondale talked, you know, Mondale's political mentor was Hubert Humphrey. Hubert Humphrey had been vice president under Lyndon Johnson. And Johnson did not treat Humphrey well. He didn't, he didn't completely really trust Humphrey. And he just, you know, if Humphrey wanted to, to travel somewhere, he had to file a request for a plane. And Johnson would just might deny it. And then even if he did get a plane, it would be like the most awful plane. So Mondale knew about the vice presidency from his mentor, and he was worried about it. And he talked to Carter, and Carter said, "No, I I want a new kind of vice president." Mondale submitted a list of things he wanted to be an effective vice president. He said he would need complete access to White House meetings and papers because you know memos going back and forth. Carter said, "Absolutely, no problem." He wanted a regular private meeting with the president. They established a weekly lunch where they could. You know, a solid hour of time with the president is gold in Washington. But the biggest thing, Carter turned around and agreed to everything Mondale wanted and said, and one more thing, you need to have an office in the White House. Before this, vice presidents were across the street. And Mondale quickly learned how valuable real estate just down the hall from the Oval Office was. he, He said, if I'm over in the old executive office building, I might as well be in Baltimore. By being in the Oval Office, one of the things he, we see is that policy is osmosis. It's not just the big formal meetings. It's the National Security Advisor, the Chief of Staff, the Vice President, the President, the other people around just going back and forth over issues and figuring out what they're going to do. And this placed the Vice President right in the middle of it.
0: So looking at this relationship, I mean, a lot of the time we see portrayed in let's say TV shows, of political dramas, House of Cards, Scandal, or the latest, we see this role of the president and the vice president being at odds a lot of the time that they're battling each other, they're not on the same page. Do we see a lot of relationships like that in the past between presidents and vice presidents?
1: Um, <clears throat> so modern modern vice presidents learn very quickly, not just learn, they go in understanding any opportunities they have to shape policy come because the president is willing to listen to them. So getting at odds with the president is not helpful. Now, in earlier American history, there are cases of vice presidents and presidents facing off. That doesn't go well for the vice president. The vice president has no institutional powers with which to challenge the president. And much more commonly, when there is a crisis around the presidency, the vice president keeps his distance. Woodrow Wilson was sidelined with a stroke for, I think, the better part of a year. And the vice president basically stayed away because he did not want to provoke a constitutional crisis. Had Congress acted, that would have been another story. But in general, and also, if you think about Gore during the Clinton impeachment, Gore, he stated that he was loyal and he kept his distance. He did not make any moves that involving the impeachment outside of just being loyal. Of course, he had political motivations to do that, too, since he wanted to run for president in his own right. Ford, when Nixon was being impeached again, kept his kept his distance. So really, this idea of the vice president plotting against the president? No. The vice presidents are savvy inside players, but their real strength comes from having access to the president and having the president rely upon them for
0: advice. So looking at the great influence that the president gives to the vice president in administering power, what would this look like? So say the vice president goes to the president on a certain topic that they want more influence on. Is this just something that the president just verbally says, yes, you may. Is this something that has to go through a line of people? How does this work?
1: It depends. (laughs) It depends on a lot of things. So on some, first of all, Most of the vice presidents from Mondale on, and Mondale established this. And here again, we we get into a little bit of the background. Mondale's mentor, Vice President Hubert, who had been Vice President, Hubert Humphrey, advised at a National Security Council meeting, advised Johnson against bombing North Vietnam. And he submitted a written memo to Johnson about it. Johnson might have been a little paranoid. But even paranoids have enemies, and Johnson's, first of all, the fact that Humphrey spoke out at a National Security Council meeting meant other people heard, and it could be leaked, that there was a disagreement over this. And once there was a memo written, it's like, well, why would you put this in writing to leak it? So Johnson saw the potential that Humphrey was going to work against him. I don't think, I mean, that's not historically who Hubert Humphrey was. He was about as decent and honest a man as, as has ever existed in American politics. But because of that, Johnson cut him out. And I don't, he didn't hold National Security Council meetings. He held informal meetings and he just didn't invite Humphrey. Mondale took a lesson from that. He didn't, he was very careful in meetings where he didn't know if he could absolutely trust everyone. So any larger meeting, Mondale was quiet and saved his advice for the president in private. In smaller meetings, he could speak out because there, if there's only a couple of people and something leaks. You can track who leaked it. And nobody wants to be leaking like that. You know, that's, that's a bit dangerous game to play. So he really saved his advice for very specific settings where effectively he could bring something to the presidency and say, Hey, Mr. President, uh, I think we're going in the, maybe not the wrong direction because presidents don't, like being, don't need to be told they're right or wrong. That's not, I mean, you can do that every once in a while, but it's much more, it's much more nuanced and much more specific. Here's something you should take another look at, Mr. President. Or, you know, Mondale being a master of the Senate, it happened a lot. The president wanted to do too many things and say, hey, Mr. President, of these five big things you want to do, pick three. If you try to do five, you'll overload the Senate and you won't do any, you won't get any of these things done. Now, so that's the number one place it happens in these sort of small meetings, those weekly lunches. All vice presidents treasure those lunches because that's, as I said before, an hour of time to just talk to the president about anything. That's a big deal. Gore famously used his lunches to give Clinton lectures on global warming. I don't know if Clinton appreciated it or not, but he, he tolerated it and at other times he clearly appreciated Gore's advice. And I should add, there are cases where the vice president will, the president will say, I'd like to know what the vice president thinks. If they have a good relationship, like Carter and Mondale, like Clinton and Gore, probably like Bush and Cheney, there might be a case where he says, you know, this is what I'm thinking about doing, but let me see what the vice president thinks. Let me see if he's got the same read on the issue that I
0: do. So, Why don't we transition more towards the VP's role in national security? I mean, is his role in national security really needed? And if so, what would it look like or what should it look like?
1: Well, there's no formal constitutional role. So formally, no, it's not needed at all. And that's sort of one of my big questions. The president has all the advisors in the world. You know, he's got a secretary of state, he's got a national security advisor, and he can call anybody he wants. So, what does he need from the vice president? What does the vice president bring to the table? And there's a lot of pieces to that. One is I mentioned the outsider presidents, that we've been electing people to the presidency who did not have much Washington experience. Carter had been governor of Georgia, Ronald Reagan was a governor of California, Clinton was governor of Arkansas. Bush uh, Jr. was governor of Texas, and Obama spent four years in the Senate, two of which he spent running for the president. So not a lot of deep experience in Washington, D.C. And there's a couple of aspects to that. One is the jump from a state legislature to the U.S. Congress is significant, you still have to lobby. You know, the, the state legislatures, you still have to lobby. They still have procedures. They can still vote against you, but they're much smaller. They are, on the whole, less professional, and they don't have a vast array of bureaucratic agencies of their own supporting. So Congress, it's like going from, depending on the state, it's going from the minor leagues to the major leagues. Maybe the game's the same, but it got a lot more complicated. So that's one. And, and let me just say, every modern president and vice president from Mondale on, including, by the way, uh, Bush Sr. and Quayle, in each case, the vice president had input on congressional relations. So that's one area. The other is the tools of foreign policy. You know, people have this image and you know, you and I, we read a lot. We probably read a lot of the same articles, a lot of the same publications. And I see pundits and prognosticators, and you know, international affairs experts saying, "Well, the grand strategy ought to be this. The U.S. ought to do this. We need to forge a new relationship with this country." There's no, as one of the people I interviewed put it, "You can't order these things. It's not like you order them off of a Chinese menu." There's no secret. Uh, Buttons in the Oval Office—you can push, you know, engage country, you know, engage country X, isolate country Y. It's not like that. The mechanisms of foreign policy, how you use the State Department, the intelligence community, the Defense Department, the uh, international economics community to achieve our national goals—statecraft. If you haven't done it before, you don't necessarily know how it works. Now, of course, people who get elected president are pretty sharp, confident people. They can learn, but having a vice president who's already familiar with these things can be extremely helpful. They may also have specific experience with other countries. You know, uh, Bush Sr. was vice president for eight years. He had been the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, He knew a few things about international diplomacy. He knew a lot of international leaders. All of these are areas where the vice president can be helpful in just helping a president understand the guts of how something's going to work. And and this is sort of the line I like to use. If, If I can get a book together about this, my working title will be The Whole Equation. It's from an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel about Hollywood talking about, you know, no one really understands the whole equation of how pictures get made. But I feel like that works for policy, too. And the vice president, like the president, has to think about the politics and the policy and the process and and often personal issues and weigh it all together.
0: So looking at that, especially the foreign policy aspect, the vice president, can they also be an individual that helps the workload of the president. So say that there's an issue potentially that is taking place overseas or relations that need to be fostered. Could it be an issue of let's send the vice president as opposed to the president because there's just too much of a workload and the president, uh, sorry, the vice president, should I say, is there to represent the presidency? Is that something we see in the foreign policy role of the vice president in modern times?
1: Absolutely. Now, for the longest, for, for <clears throat> quite a long time, the vice presidency, vice presidential role in foreign policy was derided as sort of uh, funeral duty, wreath laying. And, and that's not insignificant. The United States does need to be represented at major international funerals. And that can be a huge demand on the president's time. But it's really grown to much more substantive issues. And I'll throw in a, and not just, by the way, there's a couple of different angles here. There are, there's the international travel angle, but there's also overseeing specific issues that require high level interdepartmental oversight. That is something that crosses several different several different uh, government agencies, but really needs to be seen a, attended too carefully. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Gore, on the president's behalf, oversaw the security for the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. This was an interagency issue. There was the military, there was domestic law enforcement, and domestic law enforcement has innumerable components. And they needed someone who could really sit on the issue, who wasn't from just one department, and who was understood was effectively speaking for the president. That was Gore. The Reagan administration had a spotty national security process. Reagan, of course, had huge achievements in the national security realm, but the actual process was spotty, and we saw that. There was the breakdown with Iran-Contra. He had six different national security advisors. By the way, my advisor at the University of Maryland, Mac Dessler, co-authored a terrific book about the national security advisor, which I highly recommend. It's called In the President's Shadow. And if you're interested in this, that is the go-to book. So Reagan's national security process didn't always work well. And there were points where uh, Vice President Bush acted as a sort of utility infielder, you know, taking on key issues. He headed the Special Situations Group. That was the crisis management unit of the National Security Council. So when the Grenada invasion happened, Reagan was actually playing golf in Georgia, and they didn't want to they didn't want to interrupt the trip because that would have given away that they were preparing the invasion. It wasn't that Reagan was not involved. So it was actually Bush sitting in the crisis management center, just coordinating everything. Bush also chaired a working group on terrorism. The administration was having a lot of trouble figuring out responses to terrorism. And again, terrorism is an interagency. And this, of course, is my day job. Terrorism is an interagency challenge. There's military aspects at the there's Justice Department aspects. There's the State Department. Now, of course, there's Treasury and other departments. And Bush chaired a working group that helped establish framework. He said, "We in the in the uh, report he wrote on terrorism, Bush said we didn't necessarily answer the question of everything to do, but we figured out frameworks of the kinds of things we should do." So that's a very. These are very useful roles. And of course, the international travel representing the United States, and that really grew. In particular, under Gore. I mean, they've all of the modern vice presidents have traveled extensively, but Gore chaired ongoing commissions. The Gore Chernomirgan Commission played a huge role in managing US Russian relations, and then Gore extended it. There was a Gore Mbeki Commission with South Africa, there was a Gore Mubarak Commission with Egypt. So,
0: looking at this aspect of the vice president, uh, Vice presidents don't have a cabinet department. And as you mentioned earlier in the talk, the president has all kinds of staff and people to um, advise him on topics and discuss issues. So looking at the VP not having a cabinet department, how does this hinder the power of the vice president or even enhance it when dealing with issues of, say, national security or foreign policy?
1: Well, it is a mixed blessing. Having a cabinet department has tremendous advantages. It gives you line authority over issues. It gives you resources. It gives you far more staff. However, from the president's perspective, when you talk to the Secretary of State, you know that the Secretary of State is representing the State Department. Now, there have been exceptions to that. Jim Baker and George H.W. Bush had such a long standing tight relationship that they really were colleagues at a very high level. But when you talk to the Secretary of Defense, when you talk to the Secretary of State, they are usually adopting some element of the departmental perspective. The oldest rule in bureaucratic politics is where you sit is where you stand. The vice president works for the president. Where he sits is, well, next to the president. And if he has any political ambitions, whether it's to run for president or in his own right, or or just to shape policy, his fate is really tied to that of the president. So he can get, that's where, that's where I like to put the whole equation that he can see across all the different bureaucratic and political issues and provide broad spectrum advice to the president.
0: Actually, you made a comment on that as the political future political roles of a vice president and that's another thought you hear when people discuss the vice president of this idea that once you're the vice president your political career, if you have aspirations to become president, it's, it's done. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, most people who become, I mean, Dick Cheney was the big modern exception, but Mondale ran for president. George H.W. Bush actually became president. Gore ran for president. Came about as close as you can come I guess, to being president. Biden appears at least interested. He's talking about running. So generally, the people who become vice president have it in mind. And it's easy to say, I mean, you can, you can calculate it two ways. You can say that, well, very few vice presidents ultimately become president. Or you can look at it the other one and say, but it puts you, but very few of anybody gets to become president. So if the odds of... I think 14 of our 45 presidents, have be- vice presidents, have become presidents. But a lot of that was through death or in the case of Nixon resignation. So the odds aren't terrific, but what other position gives you even odds that good?
0: Very true. So in your dissertation, which I had the pleasure of looking over when we were discussing doing this show, You're you, too kind. You mentioned three words which are very important when it comes to the vice president's role. And those are activity, advice, and influence. And I was wondering if we could look at these and how they reflect the vice presidency and how they deal with the actual president.
1: Well, I adopted those terms because remember when you're doing a dissertation, there has to be a certain analytical framework. So I'd say, what exactly am I looking for? Well, I'm looking for influence, so advice is telling the vice the president what you're thinking or what you think he should do influence is actually ha- changing what the vice president was going to do and then activity and there's several other works about the vice president out there a lot of them focus extensively on the travel on the increased public role so i wanted to put activity in that basket and say it's important but i'm not talking about it I'm talking about how every, not every, but many vice presidents sought to influence the president by giving advice. But why is it shifted? Why has that now actually happened? So that's really what, what I'm doing. But all of them are important. The president, the activity, that is what we were just talking about, taking some of the burden off the president is pretty important. And there's lots of other spaces where that comes up. The president has limited time and energy. The vice president can take care of a lot of the campaign duties, especially in the off-year elections. Presidents have a lot to do. They don't have a lot of time to be on the road. So the vice president runs around to the uh, the various district and tries to get congressmen elected and or reelected and senators elected and reelected. Vice presidents can play an active role raising money for the party. That's a big burden and... Very time consuming. And there's also the, uh, again, in the dealing with Congress, it's not just strategy. You got to call congressmen. Well, the vice president has a lot more time for that. I know in Bosnia, the case of Bosnia in the 90s, an issue which Gore felt very strongly, he met with a huge, something like half of the, peop- the congressmen to talk to him about Bosnia. He was really committed and he devoted a huge amount of time to it. So that's an example of activity. influences when you really change what the president was going to do. So there's a lot of, before Mondale, the vice president was Nelson Rockefeller. Well, Rockefeller was full of advice for the president, but the president didn't act on any of it. He wasn't interested. Rockefeller was a big government liberal Republican and Ford was a fiscal conservative. So Rockefeller kept walking into the Oval Office with, with some great ideas to spend money and Ford just shook his head. Listened nicely, of course. Rockefeller is, by all accounts, an incredibly charming man. He listened and said, we'll see, Rocky, we'll see. And then he brought his chief of staff in and said, here's what Rockefeller wants to do. Staff it out. That chief of staff was a young Dick Cheney.
0: Very interesting. I have to ask you, did he actually call him Rocky? Was that a nickname or is that just something you're throwing in here?
1: You know, I didn't know the guy. I was I was five. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen him referred to as Rocky.
0: As Rocky. Wow. I love it. <laughs> so looking at this shift in the vice presidency, and I guess you could say the power of this position, have there been any, any concerns at the idea of too much power on the part of the vice president? I mean, have we seen that in administrations where people are getting a little bit antsy because they think the vp has a little bit too much power than he should.
1: Oh, just say it. It's about Cheney.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can use Cheney as a as our as our case example so, here because yes, there's there's been a lot that has been said about Cheney. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let I, I am I am a skeptic of the idea that Cheney was the puppet master or that he exercised vast powers as the vice president. He certainly was an influential vice president, but we should start with something very simple. No, the vice. If the president's not interested, the vice president's got nothing. The vice president has no power. The vice president can't make the president do anything, despite Frank Underwood on House of Cards. <laughs> That's not how it really goes. Cheney, in particular, happened at a unique point in time. George W. Bush had limited foreign policy experience when he took office, and he picked a vice president who could help him with that. Even before, well before 9-11, one of the first international affairs crises of the Bush 43 administration, that is, Bush was the Bush Jr. was the 43rd president, so it's easier to call him Bush 43. Bush 41 was his father, the 41st president. So Bush 43, early on, we got into a skirmish uh, enforcing the no-fly zone over Iraq. And Bush was sort of, he, he didn't realize that the rules of engagement authorized this. He was sort of blindsided by it. And his first thought was, well, let me call Dick. Let me, let me talk to Cheney and find out what's go find out what's going on if what we're doing makes sense suddenly on 9/11 the Bush administration became a national security administration remember Bush 43's focus were things like education compassion conservatism he saw himself as a domestic policy president but on 911 that shifted and he turned to his experienced vice president Cheney had of course been, the Secretary of Defense. He'd been on the House Intelligence Committee. He knew how these things worked, and you really get into this—the understanding the systems. Now, a lot of the things. Let me take the mo- one of the most famous examples of Cheney supposedly exercising outsized power: the warrantless wiretapping. And you'll have to excuse me if I model some of the facts. I'm doing this all out of memory, but. The administration had authorized the warrantless wiretapping, and they had a mechanism where every few months, several people, the president, the attorney general, the head of the CIA, had to reauthorize it. And there was the famous confrontation when Ashcroft in a hotel room refused to sign off on it. And a huge cadre of Justice Department lawyers were basically going to resign if this was done without the signature of the attorney general. And the Ashcroft had given authority to the Deputy Attorney General, James Comey, who is now the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And Cheney just said, well, if Ashcroft won't sign, we'll just do it without him. We need to do this. Comey met with the president and told the president that everybody in justice was about to resign. And the president didn't realize this and said, "Okay, let's take another look. Now, this is taken as a case where Cheney was masterminding this without the president knowing but i think there's an entirely not entirely different but a different kind of interpretation which was cheney was trying this was happened in 2004 so the president's focus was on re-election cheney viewed his role as keeping everything he could off the president's plate that is the president's a busy guy so if i can take care of it for him i will He'd done that as chief of staff. That's the chief of staff's job, too. And the thing about the reauthorization was it had actually been signed many times. I mean, I'm not arguing the merits of the issue. I should emphasize that. There are li- serious civil liberties concerns about what was going on. But from Cheney's perspective, this thing had been signed and reauthorized many times. So There was a sense of what's going on now? Why, why suddenly there are a problem? What's, what's the holdup? So it wasn't so much that he was running a program without the president's authorization. The president knew about the program. He'd authorized it. He had authorized Cheney to oversee its implementation, especially the political end of its implementation. And Cheney was just trying to keep keep it out of the president's hair so the president could focus on other issues. So you see what I'm saying? This wasn't a case of outsized vice presidential influence The truth is, after 9-11, we were going to have a vastly expanded intelligence program. That was, whether it was right or wrong, you can sort of see how that would happen. The issue was the vice president was trying to help the president. It turned out not to work. Anyway, I cite this as an example, though, of how you can read things and see things from a different perspective. Presidents tend to be pretty confident, capable people. You don't put one over on the president. They don't get to be president by accident and Cheney mentioned that as there's actually a neat book of interviews of chiefs of staff and Cheney well before he was vice president participated having been a chief of staff and he said well your job is to keep things off the president's plate but if you keep the wrong things off of his plate things that he needs to know he's going to find out and he's going to be really annoyed so that just yeah
0: I was just going to say looking at that do you think Cheney's almost continued his role as the chief of staff, but as he was the vice president, he sort of continued what he was doing, but in a different role, but you know, keeping that flame alight, I guess, if we want to be a very flowery way of putting it.
1: You know, I think there was an element of that in, in there that he knew how a White House process was supposed to work, which made him effective at intervening in a process at, helping to shape a process, but that being said, and that did make him more effective, and and really his focus, remember, he he was from the beginning stated that he had no interest in running for president. In fact, he had toyed with running for president in the 90s and realized he didn't want to. You have to raise too much money. It's, it's a really demanding, running for president is really demanding. So he was really trying to help the president with his knowledge of the process, because And this gets into what I was saying before about the the presidency getting harder. The White House itself now has thousands of employees. It's not just, there's a couple of people at the top close to the president. And then the White House itself is a big bureaucracy that needs to be managed. That people in the bowels of the White House can hear the president say something and think they know what the policy is. And it turns out that Collides with several other priorities. So I think Cheney was trying to share his experience with the president and help him manage those things. And it's come out time and again that the president has never said, Boy, you know, Dick sure led me down the garden path on that one. That's not how it went at all. Bush has never said anything to that effect. And a lot of the things that happened. Again, I really see the vice president's role. He more helped the president do the kinds of what the president wanted to do. Of course, we were going to have vastly expanded intelligence collection after 9-11. The president, if the president had not wanted to go to Iraq, nothing Cheney could have done was going to make it happen. Yes, Cheney definitely wanted that to happen. He helped the president make it happen. He did urge the president to make it happen, but it was ultimately the president's decision.
0: So do you think, I'm going to quote Biden because he basically describes his predecessor as the most dangerous vice president we've probably had in American history. Do you think that's a little bit over-exaggerated looking at the real situation or what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think so. Because as I said before, And one of the things that's interesting is, you know, presidents have a learning curve. We elect these outsiders, but they get a handle on diplomacy and international affairs. Certainly a few years in, you see Clinton, Reagan, Clinton, they all became much more adept at managing these things in their second term. And I think Bush did too. There's a lot of interesting examples. I mean, you see the big issues where Cheney had influence were mostly in the first term. By the second term... He still had; he was never cut out of the process. He was always a, had a role in the discussion, but his influence was much more limited. The president had had really learned a lot about how he wanted to conduct foreign policy. There was a neat story. This doesn't really involve Cheney directly. That I think around two thousand and seven, briefers were coming to tell President Bush about. North Korea, and at that point, Bush had been dealing with the North Korea issue longer than his briefers, so he had a pretty good idea of how he wanted to manage the issue. So, yeah, I, I, I understand why Biden said what he said. It made perfect sense in a political context, but I don't. Having spent all this time studying the vice president and being really intrigued by the role they play, it's very easy to overstate it. It's limited I'll give you know I'll say one more thing I I mentioned the office the White House office that the vice president now has an office steps away from the Oval Office and I was talking to the staffer to an influential vice president and I I mentioned that as one of the theories about why the vice presidents have grown in influence and he just looked at me and said believe me it doesn't matter where the vice president sits the president has no trouble overruling him. All of the vice presidents I talked to got flat nose on innumerable issues. The president is still the president.
0: Looking at that, that's sort of a very volatile position to be in, in the sense that as a vice president, you really need to have a lot of self-confidence, a lot of awareness of dealing with rejection. I mean, it sounds like it's actually quite difficult. Um, It's a job that's quite difficult.
1: I, one Carter staffer said it must have taken all of Mondale's Scandinavian reserve to sit quietly in some of these meetings. That he had been a senator, he was used to having a say, and he just had to sit quietly in the meeting and save his counsel in private for the president. same thing with George H.W. Bush you know he had been director of the CIA he'd been the UN he'd been the US ambassador to the UN he'd held all these high profile roles and here he had to play low key he didn't want to overshadow the president well in fairness Reagan was a star he wasn't easy to overshadow but he didn't want to be out front on things and I, I, that's actually a role that probably came most easily to Cheney, who had been used to being sort of, he'd been a chief of staff, he'd been used to playing that low key role. But yes, it's a real challenge, because the vice president is, most of the modern vice presidents have been very successful politicians in their own right, and suddenly, they're number two. And being too outspoken can, can get them into real trouble.
0: So looking at everything that we've talked about, so what can this shift in the vice president's responsibility tell us about decision-making as a whole in the executive branch?
1: Wow, that is a big open-ended question. Not going to make it easy for me. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I think, well, you know, it's really interesting to look at the bush Quail relationship. Because that's the outlier. Most of the people I talked about were D.C. outsiders. So they had a pretty good... They may have had a good idea of what they wanted to do as president. They were very experienced politicians. But suddenly they're in D.C. And things don't work the way they expect them to. Congress is more complicated than the state legislature back in Sacramento or Little Rock or Austin. They... International affairs, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially as we're, I I know it's still over a year away, but we are sort of heading into 2016. And certainly on the Republican side, most of the leading candidates are governors. And I've been thinking about that a lot, that governors are the biggest fish in the pond. It may be a small pond, like, say, Annapolis, where uh, my home state, or a big pond like Sacramento, but it's still a pond, whereas the president's still a really big fish but he's got a whole ocean there's whole uh, you know there's whole other countries that they have to deal with the governors have a lot more weight relative to their opposition than presidents sometimes do and the bush quail relationship's the outlier because of course bush had been vice president for 8 years he'd had a, held all these other roles before that so he he knew how things worked he knew how the levers of power functioned, if you will. And he didn't need a lot from Quayle. I mean, leaving aside uh, Quayle's own strengths and weaknesses, Bush knew knew what he wanted to do, and he knew how to do it. But more recently, and I really come to the question, it's not necessarily what. Presidents don't need people marching into the office saying, Mr. President, you need to do this. It's much more a matter of how. Hey, Mr. President, this is what we want to do. Maybe if we do it this way rather than that way. We want to pressure this country. Um, Here's a really neat example. When Clinton was looking for ways to pressure Serbia, Gore's Gore's national security advisor, a fellow named Leon Firth, who was very kind in being interviewed by me at, at great length, found, learned became an expert on international sanctions and he sort of oversaw the international sanctions. Firth had been a sent, he'd been a foreign service officer. He'd been a Hill, a Hill staffer. He knew the nuts and bolts of operation of the operations and he had the skills to make it work. So I think it's a lot more about how to make this huge, vast engine of the U S government do the kinds of things you want it to do rather than the grand strategy. Now, that that may not be completely fair because there are issues where the president really wants to know. It's like, well, I'm seeing – here again, Clinton thanked Gore for his advice on whether or not to give Jerry Adams of the Sinn Féin a visa. Because Clinton saw a huge opportunity to push the Irish Irish peace process forward. But at the same time, there was a lot of resistance. The State Department didn't like it. The Justice Department didn't like it. The British government was – there were elements of the British government that weren't super keen on it. And he could talk to Al Gore, and Gore could say, look, this is a huge opportunity. This is a legacy maker. And it, to have somebody who'd been another experienced politician who could see all the different angles to a problem, that can be really useful, too.
0: So to bring this talk to a conclusion, I was wondering, where do you see the role of the vice president? like actually where do you see the role of the vice president evolving in the future when it comes to national security and foreign policy? Do you think it's going to progress and provide the vice president with even more, we could say power, I guess. Um, What do you potentially see happening in the future on these issues?
1: Well, I think we're going to see more of, I think we're going to see a bit more of the same. The, that the vice president now pl- plays a prominent role is now understood and accepted. It is not, you know, in several of the good books about the vice presidency came out in the early eighties because it was brand new. Now we, we, we understand this. It's we've had, uh, about half a dozen influential vice presidents. So we sort of ex- expect it. We're also overall, the American voters have shown, uh, have shown that they favor the outsider candidates, the governors, the people who, and I think this is part of our political DNA, that we don't trust the Washington insiders. So we always want to elect somebody from outside who's going to change Washington. Think of a presidential candidate who hasn't run on the argument of changing Washington and has won. You know, Carter was going to change Washington. Reagan was going to change Washington. Clinton was going to change Washington, Bush Jr. was going to change Washington. Obama was going to change Washington. We like that. We have this idea that we need to change Washington. So if we're going to keep electing governors or other political outsiders, they're going to find the counsel of an experienced insider. I think they're going to continue to find it useful on Capitol Hill with the national security bureaucracy and with other governments. I think a new paradigm has been established, and I think it will continue for the foreseeable future.
0: Well, I know you're a new guest to the Loopcast, and we like to give our guests a moment at the end of the shows to either touch on a topic that we might not have discussed in the talk or have a final comment, so I'd like to hand the floor over to you.
1: Well, earlier on I said that when you look at, When you're studying the vice president, you're really studying the president. And I got into this because I wanted to have a sense of what, how do these people at the top really wrestle with issues? It's not in an abstract international affairs kind of a way. It's in a hectic, constantly assaulted hubbub where you have to figure, oh, if I do this over here, it's going to hurt me with Congress over there. And then... My top priority is going to get creamed. And then I'm just, you know, I'm just ex- presidents get tired. Vice president gets tired. And I just can't travel anymore this year. And just weighing all these complicated factors. There was a wonderful line that writers write about what they're not. And I feel like I'm a guy who, you know, I, I sit in my sweats and write and research all day. And it was sort of neat to delve into the lives of people who are pretty effective and get a lot done. And that's been a neat experience. If you don't mind, can I do a, uh, I want to do a shout out for my blog and for another, uh, another vice presidential project I find intriguing.
0: Yes, please do so. Yeah.
1: So my blog, if you, if if you thought this was interesting and want more veepcritique.com or just Google me, Aaron Mattis, and we'll you'll have links to all of this, right?
0: we'll actually post the link to your blog actually under the show so our listeners can check it out for themselves.
1: But yes, there, there 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 is hours of vice presidential fun. But if you really like vice presidents, check out Viptopus, veeptopus. V E E P T O P U S. it's a little levity about the vice presidency. Just just go check it out for me.
0: Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Aaron, or should I say Dr. Manes, because we've got that PhD now. So you got to use that title (laughs) for all it's worth, right? (laughs) Congratulations on that, by the way.
1: Thanks. And look, thanks for having me on. I had a great time. I love to talk about this, as you
0: can tell. Oh, it's fantastic. It was, I learned a lot. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon.